0: Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you've had a good week so far. As I write this on a Sunday evening, snuggled on the couch with my adorable half-Dalmatian, half-poodle dog Buckley, I fear I won't be able to get up as already everything aches after having spent the whole day in my garden. Do you know that feeling? If anybody here knows an upside to getting older, please do let me know. Before we start today, a huge thank you to all my Patreon supporters, but especially this week's new supporters, that's Alex Haining and Angela Dunavant. I really appreciate your support. I mean, I really appreciate it. And without you, I wouldn't still be producing a weekly podcast after starting 16 months ago. Today's case is from April 2013. Looking through past episodes, nearly all the murders I've covered have been men doing the murdering. On the rare occasions that the women have been violent, it was usually due to the verbal or physical assault they'd suffered at the hands of a man. And let's not shy away from the fact that it's usually men who kill women. The latest Femicide Census report, published in December 2017, revealed that 113 women were killed by men in England, Wales and Northern Ireland in just 2016. 9 in 10 women killed that year were killed by someone they knew. 78 women were killed by their current or former intimate partner. And 65 of those were killed in their own home or the home they shared with the perpetrator. Truly shocking, isn't it? But today we look at something quite different. A murder carried out by a woman on a man without any history of abuse. I will let you judge the validity of the motive. This isn't unheard of and many of you will be familiar with the case of Aileen Prowl, the American serial killer who murdered seven men in Florida between 1989 and 1990 by shooting them at Point blank Range. You recall she was a sex worker and that all of the homicides were committed in self-defence. But she was convicted and sentenced to death for six of the murders and was executed by lethal injection on October 9, 2002. For those of you who want to follow more about this story, there's a film called The Monster that came out in 2003 which chronicles her quite harrowing life from childhood until her first murder conviction. But before we begin today, let's put the case in context by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the time. With Anton Deck and their Saturday Night Takeaway being in the news for the wrong reasons recently, it was interestingly enough Anton Deck at number one this week with Let's Get Ready to Rumble, the song they had originally released almost 20 years before when they were known as PJ and Duncan, which then had reached number nine in the charts. One Direction's third album, Midnight Memories, ended 2013 as the UK's highest selling album. In the US charts, Thrift Shop by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, featuring Wands, was at number one in April and went on to become the best-performing single of 2013. In the news this week, a giant tarantula with a leg span of 20 centimetres was discovered in Sri Lanka. Eek! I know they don't want to see us, but oh, just imagine! In golf, Aussie Adam Scott won the US Masters with not even a hint of ball tampering. And on the 15th of April was the horrific bomb attack on the Boston Marathon. The same month, Willem Alexander became the first male monarch of the Netherlands in 123 years, following the abdication of his mum, Queen Beatrix. I hesitate to say the next piece of UK news after being criticised on Facebook for being overly political. I don't think I am at all. But then again, I don't agree with any of these reviews of the podcast that aren't five star. I mean, just how could this show get any better? That was rhetorical, by the way. Please don't answer. Anyway, just for the person who criticised me for politics this week, the main political news in April 2013 was the death of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. In death, as in life, this news caused huge splits in public opinion, with many people suggesting she was the best ever UK Prime Minister, and others buying copies of Ding Dong the Witch is Dead to celebrate her death, with the song charting at number 10 in the charts two days after she'd died. Today's story comes from Dover in the county of Kent. This is the birthplace of Geoffrey Archer, but also to some talented people who are widely liked in the UK. This part of South East England is probably best known for the White Cliffs of Dover. Don't worry, I won't sing that look out over the busiest shipping lane in the world, the Straits of Dover. Michael Kerr lived and died in Dover. The injuries that killed 30-year-old Michael Kerr were horrendous. No parent, of course, wants their child to die before them, but if they do, they want it to be a quick, painless death with minimal suffering. Unfortunately, Michael's parents had to hear all about the sheer horror suffered by their son, in his final moments on earth. His death wasn't quick or painless and he'd have known exactly what was happening. Indeed, from his injuries, it appears that he'd put up a huge fight for his life. As they sat in court, his parents, Pat and Jim, wiped away tears as they had to endure hearing all the details about exactly what had happened to their son in the most gruesome graphic detail. When police discovered his body next to his car on a quiet road on the outskirts of Folkestone, just along from Dover, Michael's eyes were partially open, his trousers were partially down and his buttocks were covered in dirt and grime. The pathologist told the court that he'd suffered a total of 21 separate injuries, including 11 slash wounds to his neck in an attack that lasted minutes rather than seconds not something that any parent wants to hear. The pathologist continued that one gaping wound to his throat had been of such ferocity that it had damaged the spinal muscles in the back of his neck. Two of his teeth were found intact under his body. They had been smashed from his jaw with a blow of severe force. In his life Michael Care was a fighter and he'd worked hard to live the life that he was living at his premature death. He was born with a chromosomal condition known as fragile syndrome which meant he had learning difficulties and a reading age of around 9 or 10. He spoke with a slight stammer. He had a limp. He suffered difficulties with hand and eye coordination and he'd never held down a proper job although he loved to DJ. On the decks playing his records was where he was the happiest. He also adored his car His gold Renault Clio was his pride and joy and he loved to drive it whenever possible. He often gave local people lifts for petrol money. Michael, who lived with his grandparents in Dover, was well known and well liked in the local community. Following his death, his shop friends paid tribute to their gentle, kind friend. A Facebook group in his memory quickly featured tributes from over 1,200 people. One schoolmate posted on Facebook, Your loving soul can fly with the angels. My thoughts are with your family at this sad time. Till we meet again, make sure you spin them tunes. Another said, God bless you, Michael. I will always remember you. Such a kind and caring gent. You'll be missed by many. Claire Habershaw posted, You made a big impact on people's lives. Heaven has gained one lovely angel. Sleep tight. And Jill Dodd said, you always used to want to be a star, but the truth was you already were. You brightened up every night in the attic rooms. You were a breath of fresh air. A true gentleman. Two of, his more, two of Michael's more recent friends who'd become a major part of his social circle were two 22-year-old women who'd recently begun to live together in Dover, Alicia Davis and Charlotte Coulson. They both described Michael as a good friend, and they enjoyed spending time together. Both women had endured difficult childhoods, and they spent a lot of their time drinking heavily with friends. But they were struggling for the money to keep doing this. On the 9th of April 2013, Charlotte Coulson had texted Michael saying, Leisha Davis needs to prostitute herself for 30-40 quid, so know anyone? The pair needed more money for drinking, and selling sex was the choice they made to find the cash. Michael responded, saying that he would buy sex from Alicia for £20, and he picked her up in his car, where they had sex at the secluded Satmar Lane. He paid Alicia the agreed money, and then dropped her back at the home she shared with Charlotte Coulson. I imagine there aren't many of you listening to this podcast who've never regretted a sexual encounter for any number of reasons. I know on our Facebook group when I mentioned this, Joe and others cringed at the so-called walk of shame the morning after. While for many of us, the feeling is just pure embarrassment. For others, it can inspire strong feelings against the other person. And so appears to be the case in our story today. After Michael had taken Alicia home at about 8pm, a heated text conversation broke out between Michael and Charlotte. But by midnight... They'd agreed that Michael would pick both women up and drive to the same spot as earlier for more sex with Alicia. When he arrived at their house, Alicia got in the front seat and Charlotte in the back. What happened next is in dispute, but Charlotte Coulson later told the police that Michael came back to the house and all three of them had gone out in the car. Both women had been drinking heavily, but Michael agreed to allow Coulson to drive. She said... I missed a turning in the car because I was drunk. We went into a field. I went into the back and then I passed out. She said that when she came to, her friend Alicia was with Michael on the front seats. Michael was on top of her in the passenger seat. He was trying to undo his trousers. She was panicking, trying to push him off. She said, It's like my dad because she was sexually abused by her dad. In the end, Alicia managed to get him off. Colson said she wanted to get out but she was trapped because Davis had to move her seat first. By the time I got out of the car, they were both out of the car as well. He was on the floor. You could see he had slash marks, she continued. When she was interviewed by police, Colson admitted she had punched Michael in his car to get him off her friend but insisted that only Alicia Davis had used a knife. A police officer asked her, Do you know how he got those slashes? And Coulson said Davis had been really angry. I was like, is he dead? Is he gone? She stood up and moved him for her foot a couple of times. He didn't move. Coulson said that she panicked and tried to drive away in the car, but couldn't get it into reverse. But this story didn't wash with police at all. They knew that the two women were responsible for Michael's death as the pair had confessed to friends who had then told police. But the police didn't believe that Michael was killed as he'd attempted to rape Alicia. They thought it more likely that Alicia had so regretted selling sex to Michael the day before that she and Charlotte had plotted to kill Michael in revenge. Analysis of their text records during the journey with Michael showed clearly that this was premeditated. The two women texted each other during the journey Egging each other on to start the attack that would end his life. Evidence gathered by detectives found a text message from Colson to Davis sent during the journey which said Start now, to which Davis replied, You're gonna have to do it first. And in her last text, Coulson said to Davis, Shut up and hurry up, let's party. The threesome drove to Satmar Lane, the same place where Davis had had sex with Michael a few hours earlier, arriving at 2.41am. Detectives believe that during the course of the next half an hour, Colson and Davis attacked Michael Care inside his car with at least one knife, before walking back to Dover on foot and leaving Michael to die alone in the country lane. As they walked back to Dover, they discarded the knife down a storm drain and threw Michael's mobile phone away. His phone was found despite being thrown away, whilst a number of knives, similar to a set found at Coulson's Clarendon Street address, were discovered in a storm drain near Dover. When they returned home, they washed and burnt their clothes in a desperate bid to destroy evidence. Coulson tried to burn her blood-stained favourite grey hoodie on a bonfire in the garden. Despite knowing Michael's fate, Coulson sent him several text messages as she walked back with Davis, asking him why he'd not been in contact. The incident happened at around 2.25am, but the last message from Coulson came at 5.47am, in which she told him she could not sleep. Davis messaged Coulson soon after the murder, saying, I feel so sick. I love you. At the trial, both women declined to give evidence. The defence said of the events leading up to Michael's death, there is no dispute Alicia Davis went off with him. They went to the turning circle where they'd had sex, after which he paid her £20. She didn't reveal that to the police in the first interviews. She was embarrassed and didn't want to discuss it. He wanted further sexual intercourse with her and she told him she couldn't and had to go. His interest in her persisted and endured. Desire and rejection, a potentially toxic mix. He drove them both to the same place he routinely went to for sex because he wanted to have more sex with Alicia Davis. He went there for that purpose and when she rejected him, he forced himself on her. There was sexual intercourse and it was non-consensual. It was rape. Alicia Davis, armed with the knife on the floor, began striking out, stabbing and slashing Michael Kerr. This wasn't an ordinary attack, It was a sustained, unrelenting and particularly violent one. Something must have happened to trigger that uncontrolled violence. The defence continued that Davis was guilty of killing Michael, but the jury should clear her of murder because she lost control after the alleged rape. But the jury didn't buy this story and they found both women guilty of murder, with the judge saying that the rape allegation was... A wicked story to exonerate themselves. Both Coulson and Davis burst into tears as an Old Bailey jury found them guilty by unanimous verdict. Judge Paul Worsley, QC, said the pair had taken perverse pleasure in killing Michael as he jailed them both for life. Davis was jailed for a minimum of 25 years and Coulson was ordered to serve at least 20 years. He said, you both set upon him. At the very least, Coulson punched him and pulled his hair as he sat in front of you. Davis slashed his throat. He was an easy victim. He inflicted no injuries on either of you and had defence wounds from trying to protect himself from the repeated slashing and stabbing. Rather than remorse or shock, you felt some perverse pleasure in watching him die and you were heard laughing as you travelled home along the road. Neither of you have shown any remorse at all. Your only desire was to save your own skins. Judge Worsley said he totally rejected the claim that Michael had raped Alicia Davis and said the pair both lied extensively to the police. A family statement from Michael's family after the verdict said, Michael was the innocent victim of a ruthless and brutal unprovoked attack which has resulted in him being taken from his family and friends. The pain we've experienced and are still suffering from cannot be expressed in words. Michael was a loving and caring son, brother and grandson who we miss terribly every day. Today's verdict, whilst not bringing him back, has provided us with some comfort knowing that those responsible for his death will serve a number of years in prison. However, no sentence can ever come close to the pain that Michael has endured. His mum, Pat, added that she took comfort from her son being loved by so many different people she said he was thirty when he died he was a young man who enjoyed life and loved everyone who he came into contact with and was loved by so many different people his death has had a devastating impact on everyone who had contact with him i'll never forget when the police knocked on the door to tell us he was dead it ruined our lives our son was taken because of the mindless and ruthless savagery of others Speaking after the verdict, DCI Paul Fotheringham of the Kent and Essex Serious Crime Directorate said, This was a violent and vicious attack in which Michael didn't stand a chance. He was used to giving his friends a lift to places. He was a nice person and loved driving his car. But what he didn't know that night was that Coulson and Davis were luring him to his death. Text messages show they were planning their sustained attack right up until they arrived in Satmar Lane. Michael sustained fatal injuries that night. He was left to die on his own, on a country lane, as Davis and Coulson fled the scene, discarding his mobile phone and secreting the weapon as they made their way home to eventually destroy their clothes. There were around 200 storm drains on the route they took home and we searched every single one of them, finding knives in drain number 89 which we believe were used in Michael's murder. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a pretty shocking story, isn't it? Was Michael Kerr really killed just because Alicia Davis felt embarrassed after selling sex to him? If we follow the line of the police and jury and discount the rape allegation, that has to be the reason he was killed. I think, again, this is just one of those cases that just leaves me feeling angry Michael had overcome so many challenges to lead a fulfilling life and then his life was just snatched away for such an utterly trivial reason. On this podcast, I often wonder if some of the idiots who commit these crimes actually understand the full significance of their actions. Like here, it all sounded like a game on that fateful final journey with Michael. When did it start to get real for them? When they saw his lifeless body, or when they got into bed in the early hours of the morning and shut their eyes. Both will be out of the slammer in their early to mid-30s, so they will still have the opportunity to live a full life. just isn't fair really, is it? But I guess the right thing to do is to hope they've learnt their lessons and go on to achieve success in their lives, isn't it, I guess. I'm not really feeling it though, are you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to leave a non-five-star review, why don't you call someone special to you and tell them you love them instead? Go on. I promise it will make you feel so much better. You'll miss me when I'm gone. To discuss this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join our Facebook group, which now has almost a 1,000 members. You'll be made very welcome or support the show via Patreon. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and you will find 13, soon to be 14, full-length bonus episodes as well as other exclusive content. Your support on Patreon will allow me to carry on making weekly episodes and you can support the show for as little as £1 a month. Just £1. Whilst there, why don't you support some of the other excellent UK independent true crime podcasts I've mentioned a number of them here over the past few weeks Please give them a reason to keep producing the outstanding content that they do Well, I'm feeling like a bit of a loser today So I'm off to write one-star reviews of every other podcast I can find Funny, isn't it? When I don't like something, I just ignore it I don't listen again Then again, as many of you will know My view on life is pretty simple really. It's just to work hard and be kind always as we never know what other people are going through and how anything other than kindness will make them feel. Each to their own I guess. So until we speak again next week, take it easy and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.